Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomez, and I'm your host. Today, we have Kate Rabernack, founder and CEO of Framework ESG, a management consultancy that helps companies create and preserve value through sustainable business practices. Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast, Kate. Thank you, Ahmad. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here. Just to start off, can you first tell us what led you to start Framework ESG? Yes. I'd love to say that it was all part of some grand plan, but it was really quite a fluke. I was working as a a freelance consultant uh, doing corporate communications and investor relations for large corporate entities. And one of them asked me to write its first sustainability report. And that was back in 2003. And I had done some work for the company, editing their environmental health and safety reports. And um, also I had written a speech for the chair of the board and the CEO at the time on corporate responsibility. So I knew a little bit, but this was just pulling all the pieces together. And that was my first introduction to the Global Reporting Initiative, uh, the Sustainability Reporting Guidelines. So I cracked open a copy of that because the company wanted to adhere to the guidelines and it just opened up a whole world for me. Um, At the time, I had been doing a lot of financial communications and this was just much broader. And I thought, wow, if companies actually paid attention to all these indicators that the GRI was seeking information on, you know, what value could they create for shareholders and the entire universe of stakeholders? I took the business in that direction. I read up, I learned a lot. I hired someone who had some expertise and we were off to the races. And when you started... You talk about hiring and getting the right resources available to you, and you really started when a lot of this ESG reporting and ESG almost as a way to identify issues and and for businesses to frame how they can communicate about their values and what they're doing to alleviate or mitigate certain issues was pretty nascent. When you think back to when you first started to now, is it easier or harder to get business now? And what are the changes you're seeing when it comes to the requests you're getting from clients? In answer to your first question, it's so much easier to get business now. I mean, back when we started, we were on fire. We thought this was the greatest thing for business. And we were proselytizing to the companies that we wanted to work with. And at the time, were really no structures in place. There was not a very deep understanding among people in at the highest levels of the organization as to what, what we now call ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors really are and what value they have. So we did a lot of educating. We learned and we made the connections and just spent a tremendous amount of time talking about the business case and presenting the business case. And it was really, it was really a challenge back then. So these days it's a completely different landscape. I think a lot of people will credit Larry Fink at BlackRock, but I think it was, it's just a a convergence of a lot of factors that have led to just increased awareness and increased demand on the part of employees, customers, and shareholders. And those are the three main groups of stakeholders are by no means the only ones, but those are the ones that really have the most influence over companies. And so now we hear from people in the C-suite on a regular basis that they know this is important. And for some companies, they just, they need to know where to start. 
And what's interesting about that journey is that you spent a great amount of your time in the beginning educating people on the value and the value proposition for ESG, why this is important. And then you had to get to the right level within an organization that can make those determinations of this is a value for the organization. And it sounds as if, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was external pressure that was also mounting slowly but surely while you were doing this. So you almost had external verification from sources that the C-suite or the chairperson uh, on a board of directors understood and valued and said, while I may not understand this specific topic, I do understand that people who I care about, whether it be investors like a BlackRock with Larry Fink or whomever, they care about this topic. So we need to understand what we're doing in this new burgeoning field. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think for people who are also interested in starting something entrepreneurial within ESG, that relationship and understanding how that process went for you and understanding that may be something they have to go through as well is, is very key. When you, you've been in business for a long time at this point and with any business, whether it be sustainable in nature or not, you do have to pivot, change, and alter your service offering to meet the needs, the present and future needs of your clients. Can you talk about those times where you've had to pivot and what did that kind of look like for you? Yes. And I'm trying to think if I can refer to certain touch points. So I would say in the beginning, we started out mainly in what I'll call ESG communications. I mean, we, we weren't really calling it at that point, but it was mostly about sustainability reporting, ESG reporting, CSR reporting, whatever a company was calling it at the time, citizenship reporting, a recitation and a story around those efforts. And for a lot of companies early on, it was let's talk about all the great things we're doing because we're not getting credit for that and less about being really transparent. So we were always pushing for transparency. And I think the concept of materiality uh, was one potentially a pivot point for us because, you know, about two years in, as I said, I started the business in 2003 and about toward the end of 2005, we decided to develop a process for defining materiality. Um, and, and at that time, and I hesitate to say this because I, I certainly don't know, but I, at that time, there were very few companies conducting materiality analyses and there were no, no consultancies that I knew of who were actually doing that work. So we designed a process and started talking to clients and prospective clients about the concept of materiality and what it could mean for a company. And we always talked about it as a management tool. And at that time, most of the companies who were conducting materiality analysis were thinking of it as a way to really prioritize content. And, you know, because at that time, there were these massive reports, 150, 200 page reports, not that there aren't still those massive reports, but it was such a big undertaking. And it was a way to just narrow the scope of what was being reported out. So that was a pivot point because we really started zeroing in on material issues as a way to not only report, but also as a way to really talk with our clients about strategy. Strategy is always basically an allocation of a limited set of resources. And so you can't 
do everything, as they like to say, you can't boil the ocean, so what do you focus on? So about that time, we found that we were answering a lot of questions that had nothing to do with the projects we were engaged in, or not nothing, but they were sort of aside from the projects that we were engaged in. And so we, we found ourselves doing a lot of consulting on, you know, where should a function like sustainability or ESG, where should that sit within the organization? Or how do I talk to my my CEO about this? Or how do I get my board to really start to think about these issues as business issues? And we weren't getting paid for it at that time because they were just, they were out of scope queries that we were responding to. And we started realizing, oh, well, we could, we could actually be consulting with our clients on these kinds of issues. And how did you get them from that point of, because I think there's always this concern that companies have when it comes to consultancies, especially when it comes to scope creep. So you had an opportunity, right, where you're like, I'm doing this one thing, which this was within our scope, but I'm beginning to get this these other queries, which is very interesting work, things that we probably could offer, but how do you turn a query to an actual opportunity for revenue generation in this field? Because truthfully, I think anyone in ESG service offerings, we're all struggling with, we get to a point where we can't keep doing this thing for free and we need to turn it into a revenue generator because at minimum, we have to pay for the resources necessary to, to, to do it. So I'm curious, how did you get to that point? Well, we, I will say at the beginning, we did a lot of free work. And there's, and we are always happy to answer questions and, and do some off scope work um, with our clients because we, we always want to be adding value and making sure that, you know, they're getting um, a lot for, for what they're paying us. But yeah, at some point you have to pay your own bills. So we had some very good, strong relationships with clients and we felt like we could have a pretty frank conversation and say, we've been talking to you about all of these things why don't we help you in a more formal way? And they were happy to do that. And I think you, you can't always do that. And as a consultant, you have to, you have to really, there's a balance you need to strike because you never want to be seen as just all about, well, okay, I, I spent this much time on a question, therefore I'm going to bill you this much money. But it really is, there's a point at which you can say, you know, we've, we've answered a lot of these questions and maybe it's a good idea to, to build out a scope. And what we do now is we build into most of our engagements. It's really a bucket of time that the client can use however they need to address those kinds of questions because administratively, it just makes it much more easy for the client and also for us so that they know they have this, we call it SOS, which is, you know, help. It's been very successful because they really they like that idea of being able to just come to us with anything. And so we're sort of their outsourced ESG team. Uh, so that's that's how we manage that. But it's it was difficult to do it first because we were just getting started and, and really didn't want to, we didn't want to push too hard. And you're right, budgets were very constrained at that time. So it was a, a fine line that we had to walk. When you, one thing, you know, I think a lot of people who have aspirations to, become their own consultant or start their own ESG related business. I would really be curious for, for you to talk about the time commitments and how do you balance the amount of time that you work on providing actual services to your clients and then 
things that we would consider overhead, the hiring people, the education, the, because I think it's really important for people to understand that while entrepreneurship is glamorized, it is also a lot of work. And I think people really need to understand it's not as fun, but it is worth it. But I think people need to understand what does that mean? So I, I think I'll start with the fun. I think the fun aspect of being an entrepreneur is that you get to create something and you get to envision it and then follow through and do it in a way that suits you. So I came from the legal field. So I was a commercial litigator and literally billing almost every minute of my time uh, because I wasn't in an administrative role. I was a, a young associate and I had a friend who had a sign on her wall that said, I'm living out my life in six minute increments because that's what it felt like. We do bill time, but what we really try to do is is allow people the flexibility so that they can um, create space in their work days for focused time. They need to go out and go walk the dog or take a break or whatever. They can do that. In the early days, I worked, I mean, I worked a lot because I was both doing the consulting work and running the business. And there was not a lot of balance. I think it's a little different now. It's it's a larger firm. There are, we've divided up responsibilities, so it's not all on one person to do. But I think the challenge with going solo and doing this on your own is you have to not. And it's part of it's because it's the space, right? If you're an accountant and you go solo, you've you've got your skill set that you've built to get your CPA, and you you know you're going to build that over time, but. This is an ever-evolving field and things are changing. At These days, they're changing at an incredibly rapid pace. So you not only need to build your skill set, but you need to keep up, need to keep ahead in order to stay competitive. And that's where carving out space for professional development, for learning is incredibly important. So we don't set the kind of billable targets that some management consultancies might, or that law firms might, or that accounting firms might, because we have to keep space open for learning and for making sure that, you know, a new standard, a new GRI standard comes out. We have to learn that standard so that we can apply that standard. And so that when a client asks us a question about it, the people who are, are serving that client can address that question in with alacrity and with deep understanding so that they know what direction to take. So I think that's one of the big challenges of this particular space right now. And at the moment we're in, that is different from other kinds of, not all other kinds of businesses, but some other kinds of professional services businesses. Did I get to your question, Amat? Yes, I could, because what I got out of that was two things. One, you have a certain level of freedom and the ability to start something and see it through, which is a real value add. And then you also get to identify and create a work-life work balance that makes sense for you and, and people in your organization based on the value that you all place on education and continual education. So I think that answered it. And when you talked about you, know, you were doing almost everything in the beginning, there comes a point in time for this work and any type of consultancy or any type of business where you as the founder can no longer do everything and you need to make that first hire so and you've hired and you've grown your your business so especially now we're hearing that it is a it's a lot harder to find talent especially because the field is becoming a lot more specialized so there's a lot of granularity 
in what people can uh, sort of specialize in when it comes to ESG. And I'm curious, can you describe how it was to hire that first person uh, that you hired and then juxtapose that to now when you're looking for people, how is that different than how you may find people or how you may identify the needs for for framework? Sure. So it's going to sound just completely retro, but I actually put an ad in a paper because remember this was back in, I think this was in 2004 when I like heard my newspaper. first. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. A local, a local newspaper. And I, I don't even recall if at that time they had an online version of the paper, but I essentially put an ad in the paper and said I was looking in the employment section and said I was looking for a sustainability consultant and somebody spied it and wrote me a letter. And that's how I made my, my first hire in the space. And she eventually became a partner. And uh, now she's with a big firm, a company uh, in-house. But it was totally different from how it is now. I mean, it's just, and you're right, the talent landscape, especially in this space, is very interesting. And I've been looking at at LinkedIn and different places where the companies are advertising like never before that they want to bring people in-house, which is, is really fantastic. And of course, it poses a challenge for us. So it just makes the our value proposition much more important to get out there in front of people so they have something to compare. And as a small firm, we like to think we're different, but people have so many choices now. And it wasn't the case even five years ago, 10 years ago, it wasn't the case. But again, it's a convergence of all of these levels of interest on the part of all these different stakeholders and we're hiring people we're and we have several positions open right now where we are, have been very successful in hiring is is at, at the analyst level because this has always been a the case with us we we tend to hire people who are younger and very intellectually curious and really hungry for the ability to build their skill sets and I think we're facing the same challenges that pretty much everybody in the space is facing, is finding people who have the, the requisite experience and abilities to really deliver value. So it's an ongoing process. Here's one question I have, that when you talk about the ability to look for talent and how there's a lot of opportunities for a business to bring folks in-house, curious, when you've worked with a business, what have been the times or what would you suggest a business do when they are looking to hire a consultancy like Framework ESG? Are there certain things that they need to do in preparation that would make the relationship a lot better for, so they can get the most out of it? Because one of the concerns I think some businesses have when they reach out to an organization that does boutique ESG work is that they don't know anything. They don't know if it, how to create value. And conversely, there's some that will throw everything your way, but they really don't have the internal understanding of what they're really purchasing as a service. So I just am curious about that. Well... It's funny, we just did a whole workshop on this, just how do we make sure that we are constantly understanding what the client needs and what the client wants. And one of the things that we did was look at what does the client go through when it's thinking about getting to this point to hire a consultant. So um, this is kind of fresh in my mind, but I think one of the things is to really understand what you want 
And granted, we start working with clients all the time who don't know what they want. And then that's part of our job is to help them figure that out. But to, to understand to the extent that they can, what kinds of capabilities they're looking for, what does success look like for them? And just to take a little step back, a lot of the newer clients that we've started working with are companies that haven't built out an infrastructure to address ESG issues. So one of the questions I do have uh, from my list, where do you see your business going in the next five to 10 years? There's so many companies that we're seeing being bought and bought by private equity and bought by other consultancies that they're beginning, there's a feeling that there's beginning to be a coalescing of larger boutique firms that are specializing in providing ESG services to companies in a, either in a specific industry or across the board. So I wonder what are your sort of grand plans for framework uh, ESG or is there something that you see the the field generally doing that people should be made aware of? Sure. So I think I'll start by saying we're seeing that kind of consolidation too. And it's really exciting on the one hand, because what it means, you know, when a company like KKR buys a majority stake in ERM, which is a, a large ESG consulting firm. I mean, that's a stake in the ground. And it's really exciting because it means that these concepts are really here to stay. And it's not a fad. It's not something that's just going to wane. It's just, it's going to, consideration for ESG issues in daily decision-making of business is just going to be a way of, of operating. So that's great. I've seen this happen in the past too, even in this space where there's some consolidation, but then it it does wane. I think there's always going to be room for small firms to to be in the space and to consult. It's always hard. It's always an effort because you have to be different. You have to be nimble. You have to be responsive. You have to have some kind of spark and you have to be really client focused and make sure that you know, you're being responsive and giving something to those clients that they can't necessarily get at some of the larger firms. So having said that, I mean, we have always wanted to grow, not growth for growth's sake, but really growth from a perspective of where can, where we, that's how we can do the most good is we can have the largest impact by being able to work with more clients at higher levels within the organization. And to be able to do that, we have to be able to grow. So the grand plan is to continue to do really great work with our clients and to really build a reputation for being a firm that is a long-term real partner to our clients. Uh, whether that means growing to 50 people or 500, I don't see us growing to be huge because that comes with its own set of challenges. That said, organic growth is a big challenge. And so I would be not thinking big enough from a mission standpoint if I weren't thinking about how we could grow through partnerships, through acquisitions, through strategic partnerships. So I'm not going to give too much away, but I think what we're looking at all kinds of ways to grow because we need to expand our skill sets. And you know, one of our challenges has, I think, been just subject matter expertise so that we can really assist our clients with execution on um, some of the work we're doing. So we're exploring how we can make sure that we have the right partners. There's no shortage of subject matter experts 
in the space. And so, you know, building those relationships is really important for us. And if someone wants to get a hold of a framework ESG, what is the best way for them to contact you or contact the firm for interesting work that they may have for you? So we have on our website contacts. So if someone is looking to join the firm, we have a a tab on our website that says join our team. And that's where we post our position descriptions. So when we have openings and we do now, and that's how they get into the application process. And then for if someone wanted to get in touch with us as a, to serve them and to work with them, they could contact uh, Victor Melendez. It's vmelendez at frameworkesg.com. Victor is our um, president and chief growth officer. Well, thank you so much for being on the ESG Matters podcast, Kate. And thank you for your time. Thank you. It's so good to talk to you, Amat. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas. 